All right, so 1 John. As I go through the Bible, I have a word for each book of the Bible. And over time, they've changed, so my kids um, don't love that, nor does my wife. And so I change them all the time. I learned it from Dan. Dan likes to change things, so I figured might as well change it up. And so <laughs> this one I kept at least the name, the word the same. So what is Jesus in 1 John? How do I remember the book of 1 John? It's not a long book. It's at the end of the Bible. So how do I remember it? Jesus in this book is real love. Jesus is real love. And out of a verse that we know quite well, John 3.16, I use John, 1 John 3.16, says in the NLT, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. This love this agape love, this love that's not something that we just know, it's, it's an action. This kind of love is an action. It's not just something we know. That's going to be the theme as we go through here. It's not just something we know, it's an action. It must be, love must demands action. And so what will I do? If Jesus is real love in First John, how does that practically apply to my life? How do I take this book and apply it to my life? And so for me, I will have real fellowship with God by, put, by not putting anything in place of Jesus. I will have real fellowship, this koinonia, which we're going to talk and talk again. So you're going to know the Greek word for fellowship, this koinonia in the Greek, this real fellowship with God by not putting anything in place of Jesus. We might say the word antichrist. I use anything in place of Christ. An antichrist is anything I put in place of Jesus. And so coming out of 1 John chapter 5 at the end there, verse 21, again out of the NLT, and then the rest of the time we'll be in the New King James. But dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. Keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. So, we're in the book of 1 John, but who is John? Why should I listen to this guy, John? Why is he qualified to write a letter to a church that then gets passed around? Who is John? And so we meet John in Matthew chapter 4, verse 21 and 22. This is how John knew Jesus. If he's going to talk about Jesus, he must know Jesus somehow. So going on from there, it says, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. In the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus calls them, as he does everybody, and they immediately, John and his brother James, leave the boat, their father, the business, and they follow Jesus. I don't know. How many of you can say that? I know I can't say that. When Jesus first called me to himself, I didn't immediately leave everything that I was doing, my family, the family business, um, and follow Jesus. So what a unique calling that John had and, and quite a faith. And so John happens to be one of those that is closest to Jesus. There was three disciples that kind of had this close relationship with Jesus. Jesus kind of singled out these three 
and John was one of them. Matter of fact, he was singled out so much that he saw Jesus in his glorified state. It says in Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led him up on a high mountain by themselves, just the four of them, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And these will be themes as we go through 1 John. These will be themes that come back up, this glorified part of Jesus, this godly outshining of God in his glory that comes off of Jesus. But John was one of the few that were there. Matter of fact, Jesus said, don't even tell the other disciples about this. It was a unique experience. So he has a unique perspective to share Jesus with us. John is also one that we know of that was at the cross. The rest of them are all kind of hiding somewhere. We don't know exactly, but they seem to be hiding. But yet John is there at the cross. And there's a unique thing that's mentioned about John, which he'll bring up in 1 John, this real love thing, this agape love. So it says in John 19, verse 25, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, of course, John's writing about this, the disciple whom he loved, standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. It's been known, and we'll get into the church in Ephesus, which is where John's most likely writing this letter, but he supposedly, according to church history, took Mary to Ephesus and took care of her there as he pastored the church there and led the church there in in Ephesus. And so there's still a unique thing remaining about John as he tells us about Jesus in John chapter 21. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. I'm sure he loves to write that, especially as he talks about Peter. They kind of had a rivalry if you've gone through the scriptures. And so the disciple whom Jesus loved, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, that's John, said to Jesus, but Lord, as maybe I would, what about this man? What about John? He had just, Jesus had just got done telling Peter he was going to die a terrible death. He was going to die the similar way that, that Jesus died. And he said, it's not going to be good for you, Peter. So Peter says, hey, wait a second. What about John? What about John? What about him? And Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Peter, you follow me. Just follow me. Don't worry about John. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I will, Jesus said, that he remain till I come, what is that to you? There's always been this thought within the church from the very beginning. We see it again here that Jesus is coming during our lifetime. Jesus is coming during our lifetime. I fully believe Jesus is coming during our lifetime. But John did then too. He even had words that possibly said that Jesus could come before he died. 
And so we see John, he is the oldest one left, this kind of, call it a prophecy or whatever you want. He is the elder statesman. He is the disciple that's left. All the rest of them have been um, martyred for following Jesus. And here is John, and he's still remaining. And he's there in Ephesus, and he's writing to a church that's been there for quite a while. And so this church in Ephesus, Jesus dies and goes back to heaven sometime in in the 30 ADs. Paul, who starts the church in Ephesus somewhere in the 50 AD range, so about 20 years after Jesus goes back to heaven, the church is started there in Ephesus by Paul. And then Paul writes the book of Ephesians in the 60 AD range. Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD. And John's writing his gospel somewhere in 80 to 90 AD, and then this letter to the churches there in the area of Ephesus, which is in Turkey, he's writing somewhere around 80, 90 AD. So it's been 60 years since Jesus went back. The church has grown. It's gone all over Europe now. It's all throughout Turkey. It's all throughout the known world. There's people believing in Jesus. But the persecution has started to happen with the destruction of Rome and that there was great persecution that, that was coming upon them. And so John's writing from this place in Ephesus, which is this huge city. It's the second largest city, we believe, in the Roman Empire at the time. It's the mega church back then. It was the sending church. It was the one where everybody was going and planting churches from, this mega church there. So John is there, most likely had been there with Mary. Peter spent some time in, in, in Ephesus. And so what's going on there is, just like any megachurch, there's a lot of world in the church. There's one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple to Diana, or Artemis, right? This god of basically sex, this god of just this wild kind of animal instinct, sexual desire, perversion of worshiping God usually turns to sex. We have a huge problem with pornography today. Even within the church, we can say we don't, but it's, it's true. And so that had crept into the church, and the things of the world had started creeping into the church. So John is going to write to the church there about, about the problems that are going on, but specifically about sexual sin and the worship of, of false gods in that way. And so... We're going to talk a lot about fellowship. What is this fellowship with God? What is this koinonia? The Lord has given us a way to practice this. And it's called marriage. The closest physical thing that we can understand to the spiritual reality of this fellowship, this oneness with God, is through marriage. In marriage, husband and wife become one. It's all the way back to the garden. All the way back to the garden, this oneness in marriage is the physical reality of a spiritual reality that is so much greater than that. As you go through scripture, you'll see that the spiritual will control the physical, both good and bad. The, phys- the spiritual is more powerful. The spiritual is greater. The spiritual lasts forever. The physical does not. And so the spiritual will control the physical. So God gave us a way to work out this koinonia, this fellowship, this loving relationship within marriage. Marriage is to point to our relationship with Jesus. You can kind of see how well your relationship with Jesus is going by how well your marriage is going. Because it is the best way to practice our love for others should start 
in that relationship. It, it is a picture of Jesus being married to us in this Konania relationship. And so there's this difference between knowing about God and then knowing God, this Koinonia, this fellowship, right? And so even Jesus in John chapter 5, he says this, and it's kind of one of the things that's been on my heart about children's ministry is this, that the children would know Jesus. The children would truly know Jesus personally, know him, know him intimately. We should know Jesus more than we know our spouse. We should know Jesus more than we know our, our children. It should be this relationship that is closer than anything else in this world. He should be lifted above and higher than anything else. It should be our priority. It is our, should be our strongest relationship. So Jesus says this about the scriptures. He says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life in the scriptures themselves. And these are they that testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. You're not willing to come and have this oneness relationship with me, this koinonia, that you would have eternal life because eternal life is found in Jesus. So that's why in children's ministry, we go and teach the Bible, not so the kids can memorize facts or memorize the Bible books or even like I'm doing one thing that points to, helps me remember that book. My goal is that they would know Jesus. That's why I have one word for every book, that they would know who Jesus is throughout the entire scriptures. Who is this Jesus? Because he is the creator of this world. He did create me, and I want to know him all the way from the beginning to the end. Who is Jesus? And so how does this play out? How does this relationship play out? See, because in the Old Testament, the priests were at church. They were at the temple. They read the scriptures. They worshiped. They prayed every day, far more than maybe we do, some of us. And so, but what's different? What's, what's missing from that? So they, like Nicodemus in John chapter 3, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And so this guy Nicodemus had studied all about God. He knew all about God. And yet what he saw in Jesus was, I can't do the miracles. I don't have that power. This guy's got some power that I don't have, some power I cannot explain. I've tried to drive out demons. I've tried to heal people. He couldn't do it, but Jesus could. So he knew there's something different about this man, Jesus. And so Jesus tells him, because he's got all this knowledge, he knows all about God, but something's missing. And Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, so you can be sure, I say to you, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? See, he's focused on the physical, the physical over the spiritual. His focus is very physical here. What are you talking about, Jesus? I'm going to go back in my mother's womb? This is, I don't, I don't get it. Jesus answered, said once again, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, 
And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus focuses all on the spiritual. You've got to be born again. You've got to have spiritual life to live forever. This physical life is going to end. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Again, he doesn't get the things of the Spirit. He's focused on the physical, on the flesh. Jesus answered and said to him, you, are you the teacher of Israel? You're supposed to be teaching the people about God and do not know these things? Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? As we go through 1 John, there's going to be a lot of you know, you know, you know, we know. How do we know what we know? And so you know, how do you not know these things? Most assuredly, Jesus says, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify to what we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? See, this koinonia, this oneness with God, this relationship that we get to have with God happens one way, and it's through the Holy Spirit. There is no other way. Dan's been teaching this on, on Sunday as we go through Corinthians. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit. Here's the natural man. He knows all there is to know about God. He's the teacher. He's the Bible teacher. He's teaching the scriptures, yet he doesn't know the things of the Spirit. It's all taught from a human perspective. And so, how does this play out? So we come now to the church that we're talking about, the church of Ephesus. Started in the book of Acts in chapter 19, when the apostle Paul goes to the church in Ephesus. And we see this koinonia, this relationship we have with God through the Holy Spirit. How does this play out? Is it enough to just know about God, to know the things of God, or as Jesus says, do, do I need to be born of the Spirit? How does this practically play out in people's lives? So in Acts chapter 19, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, which we've been talking about on Sunday, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, that's the upper part of Turk, or the upper part of Greece there, Macedonia, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they believed something, but something seems missing here. And Paul, Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Something's missing. So they said to him, we have not so much as heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Well, that's kind of a problem to have koinonia, to have a relationship with God, because Jesus said you had to be born again of the Spirit, and they haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And so we see knowledge is not enough to have this intimate relationship with God. In Acts, 9, Acts chapter 19, we, we move further down to verse 13, we see this play out again. How does this play out, this oneness with God, this koinonia with God that happens through the Spirit? Then some of the inerrant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord. So they know about Jesus. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. 
over those who had evil spirits now, saying, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, now listen to the evil spirit, Jesus, I know him. Paul, I know him too. But who are you? Who are you? See, they knew about Jesus, but who are you that you're going to try to control the spiritual with the physical? Then the man in whom the spirit, then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them. Like I said, the spirit's always going to take precedence over the physical and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And even me, I'm reminded throughout my life that there's many times I try to do things for, for Jesus and I do it in my own strength. And I pray that as graphic as this kind of is, I pray that the Lord would bring that image up. Them leaving naked and wounded, as he told the Galatians, so foolish Galatians, having begun in the spirit, why are you trying to be made perfect in the flesh? Why are you trying to do the things of God in the ways of the flesh? It has to be the spirit. What does Jesus say about this just knowing him? Do we really know him? Do we have this koinonia? Are we born again of the spirit? Or do we just know about Jesus? And so in Matthew chapter 7, these are Jesus' words, starting in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I pray that none of us ever hear that. But it could be. You can come to church your whole life. You can even read your Bible. You can pray. But that doesn't mean that you have this personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. It's this oneness, this koinonia, this unique relationship that's unlike anything else. Marriage, again, is the closest thing that we get to that. And so Jesus also says in John 14, if you love me, which is what this book's about, 1 John love, this agape love, this love in action, if you love me, he didn't just say sit there and think about it, meditate on it. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you, in you. This Holy Spirit that allows us now to have this unique relationship with God. Nothing else, no animals, no plant life, nothing else has this unique relationship with God that's made available through the Spirit. So he talked about doing the will up there. He who does the will of my Father in heaven shall enter it. We're going to talk about one of the few places where it says what is the will of God 
in the Bible. If you do a search through there, what is the will of God? As it relates to this church in Ephesus, as it relates to the book of 1 John. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul writing to Thessalonica, the church there, he says this. For this is the will of God. This is the will of God. I mean, it plainly says it. Your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Paul says, I don't expect anything else from them. They're in the flesh. They don't have this koinonia. They don't have this relationship through the Spirit with God. But you, Christian, born again of the Spirit of God, the will of God is that you would sanctify your body and abstain from sexual immorality. Mostly today, a lot of pornography, a lot of Christians claiming that they love Jesus, yet enslaved to pornography. We're going to read through 1 John, and we're going to see, should not be, should not be. We shouldn't be making excuses for it, or Jesus has forgiven it, or any of that. The will of God is that you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that. And so, John's going to write to them about these things of knowledge. Because what had happened is, I know God, but they're making all these excuses for all of their sin. They're saying that the physical body is matter, it's evil, and the spirit's good. So, there's two different sides to this thing. One says, I can discipline the body, basically beat the body, and I can stop sinning. There was a guy by the name of Martin Luther who tried this, sat up there in a monastery, got away from all the people, got away from the world, got away from what he thought was all those temptations, and he thought, now I can have this intimate relationship, this koinonia with God, because I'm going to discipline my body to not sin. I'm going to get it under control. I'm going to control the flesh. And so he would beat himself because he couldn't do it. He would carry that heavy burden of trying to be righteous in his own strength, in his own flesh. Until one day he came across Habakkuk and it talked about this justification by faith that Paul will bring up in the book of Romans over and over again. Just if I never sinned through my relationship with Jesus for what Jesus did for me, I can now be just as if I never sinned. And so what drove Martin Luther to go against what was the Orthodox Church at the time and the government and the church all mixed together was this thing of freedom from sin that's found in Jesus, this justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Jesus alone. And he stirred up a whole war all around the world because of this message of God's grace. The same thing Paul did as he planted all these churches. And so, it looks like the church in Ephesus responds pretty well to these letters from John. Because in the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks to this church once again, one final time. And Jesus says, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven gold lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, 
and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. So they seem to be testing the things of the Spirit. You have found them liars. Seems like the Spirit's there. You have persevered through the persecution and have patience. Have six kids like I do, and you'll learn a lot about patience. I think I prayed one too many times for patience. Um, but I'm still learning. Long-suffering is, is a better way of putting it. And have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you. Your doctrine's right. Your knowledge is right. But there's one thing that they're missing. You have left your first love. It's somehow now gotten into religion, into a system, into a set of rules. Every church at some point, this happens. Even within Calvary Chapel, we saw this great move of the Holy Spirit back in the 60s and 70s, carried on into the 80s. But after a while, it starts to become systemized and theologized and all these things. And we lose our first love. Like the reason that we believe in Jesus in the first place, his love for us. His love for us. You've left, your, you've left your first love. Your doctrine's great. You're doing all the works. It all looks good on the outside. But you don't have this agape love. You don't have this relationship, this konania relationship that is based on love. It starts with love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It is love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Or, or else, Jesus says, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Unless you repent. And so that church is no longer there. That church no longer exists. There in the place of Turkey, because obviously they didn't go back to their first love. The doctrine is good. The works are good. But the love is not. It has to be out of love. As I serve here, I'm here to serve the children, to teach the children about Jesus in hopes that even the children will go home with some of the parents and teach their parents about Jesus and to minister to the families. And the one thing that the Lord has shown me here is not theology, has not been a greater, deeper understanding of my word of God. It's been to be a servant and go out there and pick up the blue bark that the kids love to throw all over the driveway and the playground, or around the patio. <laughs> and so I have grudgingly picked it up. I decided, since my kids are mostly the culprits, um, they have served with me here at the church, and they have gone and picked it up. So now they're a little more cautious about you know, throwing it everywhere, because you never know when Dad might invite you over to pick it up. But I've learned that I'm here to serve out of love. Right? I can't. I can't miss that part. If I miss the part that I'm here to serve Jesus and to love his people, to love these children when they're acting crazy, right? We have crazy times. We can, you can come on Monday to trail life. We can have some crazy children. Um, but there is just this, there's a time for discipline and then there's a time for just to let the kids be a little wild, especially boys, and, and just have fun and love the kids. And, you know, I have these two kids. They have special needs, that come, and um, they're all over the place. And at first, it was really bugging me. And then I prayed, Lord, show me, like, how do I minister to these kids? And 
anyways, one day I just, I saw kids messing around and I, I went over and I said, hey, you want to earn some candy? You know, if you sit here and listen to Jerry for a few minutes and sit somewhat still, I don't expect you to be perfect, you can get some candy, right? Man, those kids, all of a sudden, I don't know, but they can sit still all of a sudden. You know, and I have to remind them every few minutes, but, and then they get the candy. But you should just see the joy on the kid's face, and, you know, he got to learn something. And what I hope he's learning, that we love him, that we care about him, you know, and that we're sharing Jesus not only through word, but through our deeds. And so, 1 John, 1 John, this koinonia, this fellowship that's made in real love, the real love, the agape love, this love in action. What does this love in action and what does this koinonia relationship with God look like? John's going to give us five chapters of what it should look like, what it's not and what it is and how do we know. All right, starting verse one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, Concerning the word of life. So he's talking about Jesus. Jesus didn't have a creator. Jesus is the creator. Something that until really reading my Bible did I come to truly understand. That Jesus didn't just show up in the New Testament. He created me. He created this world. He is the creator. He created Satan. So Satan has no way does he have power over Jesus. Jesus created him. And so it's something I need to remember. Satan and Jesus are not equals. They're not brothers. Completely different. Jesus is God. Satan is an angel that was created, a mighty angel, a powerful angel, but yet created by Jesus. So it it even cracks me up when Satan comes to Jesus and says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. It's like, are you joking? But again, he was human, so he had to fully take on flesh and fully have that temptation because that is the temptation that, that we all experience, but it's just kind of humorous a little bit. And so part of the thing was that people knew that Jesus was good, this Gnosticism, this knowledge, but the idea was that physical body was evil and the spiritual was good. So Jesus couldn't have come in a physical body because then that wouldn't make him all good. There's no way he could have been good if he was fully human, fully took on flesh. He had to be the spirit being. And so I can say, oh, that sounds ridiculous. But then as I was reading through this, and when I prepared to teach, you know, I try to read through this over and over, listen to it. On my car right here, just listen to it over and over. Lord, what are you, what are you telling me? Because if I read this and I don't get anything for myself, it's a waste of time. I mean, the Lord wants to speak to me, so I should be listening. And he says, well, you do the same thing. That's my physical life. That's my spiritual life over here. And at times, I don't want to mix them. Come on, Lord. That's my little compartment over here, whatever it might be. Right? And we sometimes can try to separate the physical from the spiritual. But it doesn't work. Again, the spiritual is going to control the physical. And so John is saying, look, I saw Jesus, I heard Jesus, I know all about Jesus, I spent years with this guy, I've touched him, he was fully human, and yet he was fully God. He's from the beginning of time. He was there before time began. 
So we're not just talking about any person. We're talking about God that came in flesh. Verse 2, the life was manifested, made known, come in the flesh. And we have seen and we bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested with us. There's one way to eternal life, no matter what the world says, and it's Jesus. There is no other way. Jesus was plain about it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's one way. One way to eternal life. So if Jesus is the way to eternal life, I should want to get to know him. I should, I should build my relationship with him. I should draw close to him. And so verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you may also have fellowship with us. So interesting that he starts there, fellowship with us. Look at John's heart. He says, I want to have this oneness with you guys. I want you to have this oneness with God so we can spend all of eternity together. There is a uniqueness about the church. There is no greater relationship than the relationships that we have within the church. It should be that way. The closest thing I can come to is when I was in the Marine Corps, the general said as we were getting ready to go onto deployment, he's like, you'll never be closer to any other human beings in your life than you will be as we prepare to go to war and as we go to war. You'll depend upon that person. You'll know that person better than you know your wife. You'll spend more time with these people than you spend with your spouse. You'll know everything about them. And in the military, you have a lot of time to do a lot of nothing sometimes, busy work, maybe cleaning a weapon for hour upon hour upon hour upon hour. And you get to know people. You get to talk. It was the greatest time that I have had in my life outside of my marriage and my children because I got to share Jesus. People had to sit there for hours with me. And I had my Bible, and I got to share Jesus with them. And I got to tell them in practical ways. And people would open up and tell me about their marriage and their childhood and all these things. And I got to share that Jesus is the answer to all those problems. He really is. He really is. And so he talks about this fellowship. But I will tell you, within the church, even though it can be challenging, because any close relationship, just, just like marriage, marriage can be a challenge. Why? Because it's a close relationship. It's a relationship where you can hurt. That other person can really hurt you. It's a vulnerable relationship. So it can be a terrible thing or it can be a wonderful thing. Same with our relationship with God. It can be a wonderful thing or it can be a terrible thing if you don't really know him. And so inside of the church, I've had some of the greatest relationships because there's this genuine love because people love Jesus. They love and care about you. And it's closer than I had even in the military. It's just this unique relationship. I guess we would say out-of-this-world relationship. And so you can have this fellowship with us. That's John's heart. Truly, our fellowship is with the Father, God the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I want to put something on your mind, and hopefully the Lord gets it into your heart, with this name Jesus, this oneness with Jesus, this name Jesus. And as, again, teaching the kids, this really stuck out to me. The name Jesus means God saved. God saved. Speaks everything there is about Jesus. His own name means everything about Jesus. We just got done with the book of Joshua, which is the Hebrew word for Jesus. Jesus is the Greek word for Joshua. Yahshua, 
which means God is salvation or God saved. Jesus is God and he saved. If I know him, if I have this koinonia with him, then he is the God that saved me. He's the God. So every time I read Jesus now, I can't help. God saved, God saved. And then what about Christ? What does Christ mean? It's not his last name, as I thought for many years. But it means the anointed one, this victorious king. This victorious king. If you go into the children's ministry, even now, on the screen, you'll see Jesus coming back on a white horse with thousands of people with him on horses with the gospel. He wins. He wins. Satan doesn't win. Sin doesn't win. Death doesn't win. Jesus wins. That is the gospel message. The gospel meant good news. My king came back and he wins. He wins. And so when I think about Jesus Christ, even the name now, God saved me and he wins and I win because I have this oneness with him. What an amazing thing. So that leads us into verse four, because if it's not for that, then verse four is not true. And these things we write to you, why is John writing to us? He's writing to Christians that your joy may be full, that your joy may be full. We just got done in the men and women's study, studying the book of Ephesians. Jesus is joy. Jesus is joy. I will forget the past and look forward to what lies ahead so that I can have this joy. So I thought, well, what book should I teach out of <clears throat> after we finish Philippians? Well, I remember John wrote, as Pastor Tuck years ago just drilled this into my head, the reasons why John wrote this book. And it was that my joy may be full. The first reason that my joy may be full, that my joy, it's the second fruit of the Spirit. After love, it's joy. As a Christian, I should be joyful. I shouldn't go around, oh, life is miserable. I did have some family members that claimed to know Jesus, which was kind of a stumbling block for me because I had one uncle and another uncle that was a church planner and a pastor, and then another one that kind of attended those churches. And, I mean, he would talk to me about Jesus, but every time I'd bring up life, I would ask him, you know, how's it going? Everything was miserable. And I was just like, huh? What is going on? Like, my other two uncles are full of joy. My drug addict aunt and my other uncle on the other side of the family who came to know Jesus, their joy is full. They're crazy as can be, and they're still as crazy as can be, right? But there's a different crazy about them. They have this joy that they didn't have when they were on drugs. They're still a little weird. I think maybe they were always a little weird, but they have this joy. And yet I go to this guy, and it's just no joy. And I'm just, man, something's missing here. I wasn't even a Christian at the time yet, but I was confused. Like, man, there's a lot of joy here. I saw the drug addict and an uncle get off drugs, and their joy, and their joy was Jesus. And yet, why is this guy? And then even as the acronym says, and we had a picture up a few weeks ago, but of a cross and making the word joy, Jesus first, others, and then yourself. Mostly, we tend to put yourself, sometimes others, because that feels good to help others, and then Jesus fits in there somewhere. And I will say your life will be a yo-yo. It'll be up and down. If you live for yourself, and only live for others, your life will be a yo-yo. It'll be all over the place. But if you put Jesus first, focus on Jesus, then others, then myself, and when I'm able to do that through the Spirit, my life is filled with joy. It doesn't mean jumping jack joy. It just means this peace, this contentment. I've said many times that Kim is a great example of that joy. 
She goes through challenges, problems. But I don't ever see her come around here. I'm like, Kim, how's it going? Oh, let me tell you. It's been a rough one. Oh, it's miserable, this Jesus thing. Serving these people. Oh, you should meet some of them, Jeremy. You, you, you haven't met those ones yet. Wait till you meet those ones. She never does that. She's always got joy. Just this inner sense of peace and just, it's contagious. You want to be around it, right? It's what drives people to Jesus. All right, verse five. Now our joy is complete because Jesus is the God that saved and he's the king of victory. He wins the victory. This is the message which we have heard from him, that's Jesus, and declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. I asked a question and I honestly think my son, Andrew, might have just been born again. Based on, we're going through judges, Jesus is our deliverer, but I was going through this, and I really started thinking about this. And it takes me back to the beginning of Genesis, when there was just darkness there. There was no light. The Spirit of God was there, but that was it. There was no form. There was nothing but darkness. And the first thing that we learn about God, the first characteristic about God, is that he's light. He's that he's light. And if you think about this, I really just want to get this picture into our minds and into our hearts that God is light. Because darkness is not really a thing. It's the absence of light. It's the absence of God. Where God is not there, there's not light. Without light, there's no life can't see where you're going. Even I was talking to, I think, Bob and Colin. We were talking the other day, and we were, this just came up about the beauty of creation and the fact that it's light and that you can see through your eyes. It's, it's the light that reflects into your eyes that you can see the beauty of this world. You can see the creation, and you can see all these things, and it's because of light. Where there's no God, there's no light. So if I'm going to have this relationship, this kononia, this oneness with God, if I say that I know God, if I say that we have this relationship, because that's what we say all the time, it's, it's not religion, it's a relationship, then something has to be true. And the first thing that has to be true is that there's light. There's light. If I'm in darkness... That means there's no light. I can't be walking with God. How can I have a relationship with God? He's light. It can't be. There has to be light. And so I asked my children, as we go into the book of Judges, we talk about this saved thing. I'm saved. I'm being saved. I'm going to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from what? Saved from sin, they would say. Okay. Partly true. Saved from death. Yeah, partly true. Saved from hell. Yeah, we're getting much closer. But ultimately, I'm saved from the wrath and judgment of God. That I'm a sinner in the hands of an angry God that has every right to be angry at me. I've rebelled against him. I've sinned against him. I've gone my own way. I've made myself to be my own God. He created me to serve him, to worship him, to live with him, to be like him, it said. And yet I've done the opposite of that. And so I deserve 
the wrath of God. And so what is the wrath of God? Hell is the wrath of God for eternity, right? And we've been going over the book of Revelation, and we get in, stuck in this thing of called, called tribulation, yet the Bible talks about this great tribulation that comes. And so it's so bad that people want to die, and they can't. They kill themselves, but they can't die. I mean, imagine that, and that's nowhere near as bad as hell is. And as I started to talk to my kids about the fact that they're safe from God's wrath, as I read there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that I've not been appointed unto God's wrath, but unto salvation through Jesus Christ, the king that wins, the God that saved me, I start to understand what I'm saved from. And my kid, Andrew, says, I've been thinking a lot about this hell thing. As we described hell, what is hell like? Well, it's dark. One thing I know is, no matter what people say, you get in complete darkness, and you will go crazy. That's why they put people in solitary confinement in dark places, because you will go crazy. You were designed as a human being to be in the light of God. And when that light is taken away, it is hell. You can't even see yourself. You can't see anybody. There's no relationship. It is miserable beyond the fact that hell's going to have this pain of fire and the weeping and gnashing of teeth. But just the darkness alone and the loneliness of hell should drive me to Jesus. I just don't want to go there. Forget about heaven. I just don't even want to go to hell to begin with. So if heaven's anything better than that, I'll take it, right? Now, we know it's infinitely, even as we read in Corinthians, no mind has understood, no eye has seen, no ear has heard how wonderful the things are that God has prepared for us that, that love him. But my son, it really got to his heart now. This whole thing started to become real. The Lord has really worked in this child since we've been at this church. He had a unique relationship with Mike, who passed away a few months ago. He came in. My child didn't want to serve God really at all. You know, we had served at another fellowship. I had stood at the door for years. He had no desire to stand at the door with me. I asked him, come stand at the door. Let's say hi to people, get to know people. No, thank you. No, thank you. He wanted to go play with his buddies and have nothing to do with that. Ask him how children's ministry, and it was miserable. I already know all the stories. So dumb, baby um, stuff. He doesn't know God, but it's all baby stuff to him, right? He knows everything about God at that point, he thinks. But doesn't know God, but he knows everything about God. And he comes here and meets Mike, and I don't know, all of a sudden he wants to stand at the door, so Mike goes and gets him a badge that says Usher, and I think for the first time, it wasn't dad trying to do something in my flesh and trying to get him to serve the Lord like I do. I want him to serve the Lord, so I encourage that. It was just the Lord. He found his place at this fellowship at just standing at the door. It was like he fit in his place where God could use him uniquely without me doing it. It was just him and God. And Mike passed away that, that same week. Met him on Sunday had a unique relationship with Mike. And Dan had texted me and said, you know, this guy Mike passed away. And then Andrew said, wait a second. There was a Mike that was the usher guy's name. So I text Dan. I didn't think it was. I said, was that the usher? Dan texts back, yeah. And Andrew just started weeping. I mean, he's had grandparents die, yet not the weeping. It was like, finally, this really got to him. Because they had this unique, this Konania relationship that was deeper than this world. And the Lord was working through Mike. 
in even his final days to reach my son. And my son started asking a question. Dad, is Mike in heaven? And how do I know? How do I know? I don't want you just to tell me he's in heaven. I want to know how it convinced me that Mike is in heaven. Because if Mike is not, the sorrow of that is overwhelming, right? And then if, how does he get to heaven? If Mike's in heaven, and I can guarantee him that Mike's in heaven, then he can be guaranteed that he's in heaven. And the Lord has been working. We came here. I thought, hmm, here's my out. Pastor Dan asked me to pray about coming to Mountain Home, and I thought, there is no way. There is no way. We had prayed. We had left another fellowship because the Lord told us it was time to go, and he had something else for us through the story of, of Abraham. And um, so the pastor prayed over us, and we didn't know where, where we were going. So I was going to reach out to the other Calvary pastors and say, hey, can we just come and sit at the fellowship? I don't want to serve. I just want to sit. But I don't want to cause any scene. Many people know us at the different fellowships, so we just want to kind of sneak in the back, kind of sit there. And my wife said, let's wait. Let's, let's let the Lord have someone reach out. So we have pastor luncheons once a month. And so we, we know Dan and Kim. We have retreats up in McCall. So we get to know each other between the pastors quite, quite well. And um, so I'm like, okay, let's pray. And we'll see what the Lord does. So then Dan reaches out to me and I'm like, oh, no, no, Lord. <laughs> no, not that place. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like Jonah, I'm not going. <laughs> no way. So I figured, all right, God, I got you on this one, right? I know you know all things and you're all powerful and you're amazing and all that, but um, my son Andrew, I know he doesn't know you. And I know if I send him into children's ministry there, it's going to be miserable. And I thought, Lord, if he comes back and he says it's miserable, this is not the place. This is honestly my, <laughs> my prayer. Put out the fleece. All right, Lord, if, if, if this is you, this is going to have to work through Andrew because this kid is not positive. So, you know, he goes back in children's ministry, and I'm like, yes. He comes back. His mom asks him, so how did it go, Andrew? I'm waiting for it. Oh, it was miserable baby stuff. This church is worse than the last one, right? He comes back, and he says, perfect. Well, now I think he's being sarcastic. Like, this kid knows the word perfect? Like, I've never heard this. He just argues and complains. Perfect. What are you talking about, kid? He's like, yeah, daddy was amazing. This is the best church ever. I love it. And I'm like, no, Lord, you got to be kidding me. So here I'm praying for the kid to come to salvation, and yet I'm praying not to come here. <laughs> so anyways, this, this Konania, this, this relationship, that comes from walking with him, walking in the light. We're running out of time, so we'll stop there. We'll pick up next week here in, in chapter one and spend a good amount of time talking about this Konania, this relationship that we have with God. But I can just tell you, just time and time again, the Lord shows up in my life. I mean, I could sit here for hours and tell you stories of how the Lord has answered specific prayers. Has I mean, I've seen him change the worst of people. I love that song by, by Ann Wilson. Um, my Jesus, right? I know my Jesus can do for you what he's done for me. I know that's true because I've seen him. I know it in my own life, and I've seen it just work in so many people's lives. He changes the worst of people. He changed Paul. I mean, if Paul can be saved out killing Christians, he can change everyone. But you know why? Because people prayed for him. 
So I think as an encouragement as we close tonight is just don't give up praying for family members that don't know the Lord. Keep praying. Saul's name even means prayed for. Paul means humbled or small, right? So because people prayed for him, he was humbled by God and then mightily used by God. So keep praying no matter how bad. I, I pray for the president, as hard as that is. I pray for the vice president, which is even harder for me. Um, and I pray for the government because the Lord called me to. He needs to do a work in my heart as well towards those people. I'm called to love them. I'm called to have this love in action. So may we not, for, may we not give up praying for those to have this fellowship with the Lord. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you. Once again, we come the only way we ever can, and that is through the grace and the righteousness of Jesus and through your love, Father. Thank you that you loved us. Thank you that you gave us an opportunity to respond to your love. Help us to love people, Lord. You've called us to love people. You've called us to love our enemies. You've called us to love our family members, which sometimes can be our enemies. You've called us to love ex-wives and ex-husbands. You've called us to love the weird family, uncle and aunt, because everybody's got one, it seems, Lord. You've called us to love everyone. You've called us to love the president, to pray for him, for the vice president, for all the leadership of this country, which seems to be going the wrong way, Lord. You've called us to pray, and so we do, Lord. We pray to you. We know you're a God that can change anything. There's nothing impossible for you. Thank you for the family of God here, for the Konania that we share. I pray in this season that we go through, and we just you seem to be doing something in this fellowship, some just excitement is in my heart and in my spirit, Lord, of drawing people together. That is what we pray for as pastors we meet, but we want to minister to your people, Lord, and we want to know one another and to have that fellowship, that fellowship in the spirit, that unity and the bond of love, Lord. So do that work in this fellowship as we get ready to launch home groups and these focus groups, Lord. I pray that you would just build this unique relationship. I'm so excited about what you're doing in the young adults ministry. Lord, as you bring these young people, this next generation of kids and, and young men and women, Lord, I pray that they would grow together and that they would know you, Jesus, and they would serve you. And I'm just excited. People are bringing people to that study that, that don't go to this church. That's what should be happening, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the outreach to those around us that, that don't know you, Lord, because we desire that they would have that Konania fellowship, Lord. So do that work in all of our hearts. Thank you again for this body, this body of believers, Lord, this family. It is amazing, Lord. Thank you for your love. Give us love for one another, Lord. Help us to overlook each other's faults and to generally love and really love each other, Lord. Really love with your love, love in action. Oh, Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Mm -hmm.